We specialize in die-cast metal miniature gun models that you didn't know you've been looking for. Called Goat Guns. Bah! Yes, Goat. They are the greatest of all-time gun models you can display on your desk. Buy, build, and collect them. We offer a 90-day return policy if you don't love yours. Start your collection at GoatGuns.com. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Nineteen forty-seven, New Mexico. William Brazel stares up at the night sky. He's a foreman, working at the J.B. Foster Ranch. Brazel has seen a great many changes in the world. Born in eighteen ninety-nine, he grew up through one of the most dynamic and exciting periods of human development, as well as one of the darkest periods of all of human history. The great wars are now over. There's talk of another war with the Soviets, but maybe it's all just talk. Tensions are high. East and West are more divided than they have ever been before, and each state across the world is choosing sides or forging their own path. For a southwestern rancher, though, that's all big politics. Out here in the vastness of the desert, looking up at the stars, it makes you feel insignificant. The cosmos is, after all, vast and unyielding. Who knows what secrets those distant blinking lights might belie? As Brazel makes tracks the next day, he spots something in the distance. It's hard to tell what it is, but whatever it is, it's big. Metal, maybe? Plastics? Rubber? Canvas? Paper and sticks? Maybe tinfoil? Chunks of something spread out over a large area. Brazel goes to pick up some of the debris. It's curious. He's always been a sharp guy, but he can't for the life of him figure out what it's supposed to be a part of. Regardless, it has to be part of something. So he goes to the local sheriff. George Wilcox. Wilcox is dumbfounded too. They identify some of the materials in the wreckage, but they can't work out what it is. They decide this must have something to do with the local military base, so Wilcox puts in a few phone calls. He wants to get to the bottom of this. Already in Brazel's mind, thoughts are forming. A phrase starts being used. This must be part of some sort of flying disc. The idea of such things had been around for a little while, being effectively codified with some alleged sightings in the 1930s but this might just be proof of what some consider to be the real case, that there's something else out there, and it wants to meet us. Down from the local Army airfield base comes Major Jesse Marcel, and Marcel brought with him Lieutenant Colonel Sheridan Cavett and Master Sergeant Bill Rickett to the ranch to continue looking through the wreckage. Strange. These guys are pretty top brass, but they're making out like this crash was just a weather balloon. That was the 7th of July. The next day, the following press release was issued by the Army Airfield. Quote, The many rumours regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranches in the Sheriff's Office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such a time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office, 
Action was immediately taken, and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. End quote. The story then faded into obscurity for a while. Whilst the true purpose of the crash balloon would be concealed from the public for the foreseeable future, interest in the story died down. There were some other flying saucer sightings the same year, but public attention turned to the Cold War, Korea, and what came after. Until, that is, 1978. Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist by trade, decides to start interviewing some New Mexico locals about a strange incident he heard about just over 30 years ago. What he concludes from the denizens of Roswell is that there was far more to it than what the military said. There was a crash at Roswell, but it wasn't a weather balloon. It was an alien spaceship, and at least one alien body had been secretly recovered and autopsied by the government. In particular, he interviewed Major Marcel, who accompanied the materials recovered from the crash site as they were taken to Fort Worth in Texas. In 1980, authors Charles Berlitz and William Moore published The Roswell Incident. They claimed to have interviewed 90 people who'd witnessed a UFO crash, including using some of Friedman's research. Their conclusion was that the aliens were observing a nuclear test when lightning struck their craft, bringing it down and killing the aliens, whereupon the US government attempted to cover up its existence. In 1991, Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt published UFO Crash at Roswell. They added a hundred new witnesses and altered the narrative slightly. Friedman comes back in the following year with an updated story of his own. At this point, the UFO community is buzzing around the competing accounts being proffered by various authors, all claiming their works to be the verified fact. The government, for its part, was entirely bemused by this. But with an increasing desire for freedom of information requests, old files being declassified, and more transparency being on the rise, seeing as it had been the key in the collapse of the Soviet Union, in 1994 they released a statement. The weather balloon had been a part of Project Mogul, a top-secret project aimed at using weather balloons to monitor nuclear testing, which was reaching a fever pitch in the 1940s. The idea was to use microphones attached to weather balloons to try and detect nuclear blasts from increasing distances. In 1997, the US government also stated that reports of alien bodies were other exaggerated findings of anthropomorphic test dummies used in Operation High Dive, a similar project that also used weather balloons to test the effects of high-altitude falls on crash test dummies. The problem was, a lot of the information was, and still is, classified. Despite many Cold War-era secrets now being common knowledge, such as the many failed attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro or the sinister projects like MKUltra, there's still a lot that we don't know because it could be that the findings of that research is still in use today, and thus is still a secret. But that just means that the fire is continuously fueled and the theorists won't ever back down. And that's maybe the greatest effect of this incident. Bigfoot is dismissed as a shaky camera, Nessie was never found by lake divers, but the alien autopsy can still be considered to be secret by conspiracy theorists, and as such, this was one of the first major conspiracies to really hit pop culture and endure through to the modern day. So today, we took a look at the truth and the fiction of the Roswell Incident. Today on Demystified, we're looking at the Roswell Incident, that infamous supposed UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico in the summer of 1947. The exact date is a little shaky. 
I've seen sources say anywhere from mid-June to early July. The first ironed down date I have is that visit by the RAAF officers, that's Roswell Army Airfield officers, on the 7th and then the press release on the 8th. Supposedly the first finding of the debris was the 14th of June, but if that's the case it took an awfully long time to report it to the local base or for them to find out about it. But that could just be because of what was said in the press release that there was a lack of communication. But before we get into the specifics of Roswell, I'd like to use this episode to talk about two things. The first is aliens. Now, I realize it's become something of a running joke on this show so far that I use one hand to show my support for the idea of aliens, whilst with the other hand batting them away as the proposed solution for any of the myths we've covered so far. And I'll be frank, that's not about to change. But I will always say that, for the record, I do believe alien life exists. What form that life takes, I'm not going to be able to say. Roswell was one of the first incidents that the public latched onto with the idea of small, large-headed grey aliens, the stereotypical autopsy alien. But I take an H.G. Wells-esque approach. I think that there's no reason that aliens would be in any way anthropomorphic, that they would have this bipedal design that looks human-esque but simply a little different. My belief in aliens can be best summarised by the principle of the Drake Equation. Postulated by Frank Drake, an American astronomer and astrophysicist in 1961, it basically argues that given the infinite nature of the universe and how probability works in an infinite space, aliens must exist. Monkeys and typewriters kind of thing. The actual equation is this. N equals R, F, P, N, E, F, 1, F, I, F, E, L, where N is the number of civilizations in our galaxy which could communicate with us, and R is the average star formation rate, F, P is the fraction of those stars which have planets, NE is the average number of planets that could support life per star that has planets. F1 is the fraction of planets that could support life and develop it. FI is the fraction of planets with life that develop intelligent life. FC, or FE, uh, is the fraction of civilizations that develop a technologically advanced intelligent life. And L is the length of time for which such civilizations could release detectable signals in space. So that L is the value, is the sort of thing that SETI looks for with their big radars and telescopes. Now, all sorts of scientists have tried actually plugging in numbers to those values, including Drake, and I've come out with estimates ranging from 20 to 1,000 to 100 million potential alien civilizations within our galaxy alone. Take that with a massive grain of salt, though, because our galaxy itself is mind-bogglingly colossal, and the universe is mind-bogglingly bigger than that. So to recap, do I believe aliens exist? I think it's basically a certainty. Given the vastness of the universe, both the known and the unknown universe, I think it's almost entirely definite. But do I think that they're responsible for even a fraction of the weird stuff on Earth? I don't think, for the record, that aliens have ever visited us or might even ever be capable of visiting us, given our current understanding of the science behind things like faster-than-light space travel. The second thing I wanted to talk about is conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories would make a great many philosophers spin in their graves, because they are, by and large, unfalsifiable. That is to say, the cornerstone of conspiracy is that they can't really be proven false, and many adherents will fall back on the old adage of whether you can't prove X thing didn't happen. You can't prove that such and such a conspiracy didn't happen. 
even if you point to hundreds of inconsistencies with the story or the basic premises that underlie those inconsistencies or the logic of the argument, conspiracy theorists will always simply tell you, oh, well, you're one of them or you've been brainwashed or well, that's just what they'd want you to think and just straight up deny the evidence. A great example of that would be flat earthers. There's an argument where they use airline flights to try and sink in the flight plan argument for a flat earth. Oh, these flight plans don't make sense. When you show them one that does make sense, the common response is, well, I think that flight isn't real. I think it's a fake flight that they just put on the list as part of a government plan to trick you. That evidence is just instantly dismissed like that. My point is that with conspiracy theories, you can't argue with them necessarily because they're founded on ideas that can't be disproven. It's like believing in leprechauns or unicorns. I, well, I've never seen one. Ah, yes, but you've never not seen one sort of thing. If you assume that the government or their puppet masters or whoever it is has an omnipotent level of control over media and information, there's always the possibility of a cover-up at some level so you can never prove that the conspiracy doesn't exist. The classic one with that is the moon landing. It's been proven time and time again, both back then and now, that the moon landings categorically did happen. If you want, you can take a laser and shine it at the reflective plates that they left up there to prove that they went. But for some people, it's always a cover-up that you must be a part of. They won't buy it. For them, Kubrick faked it on a soundstage in the 60s, and that's a fact, and nothing can dislodge that. So when we talk about Roswell, there's bound to be one or two listeners who are believing in the idea that it was aliens who won't be convinced by any of the evidence as far as there is with, with all of these topics. But I would like to clarify that as far as I can in this show, I would generally try and stay away from conspiracy theory-esque topics. Don't expect Area 51 or the Loch Ness Monster. My remit is history, folklore, and the areas that lie between. I can show, with evidence for instance, that the man in the Iron Mask was unlikely to be one of the King's generals. But I can't prove that the Illuminati isn't keeping the truth of a flat earth away from my globe-loving brain. It's just, it's not in my remit for this. But Roswell is different, because to me, this is a historical event. That is to say, the event really happened. There was a crash of something at Roswell in 1947. The debate is as to what that crash was, and whether any further implications stem from it. But now onto the evidence and the story. So sometime in the summer of 1947, a metallic object crashed near Roswell, New Mexico. The object was made chiefly of metal and rubber, it seemed, but there were also bits of tinfoil, aluminium foil for the Americans, sticks and paper with glue as a binding agent. Now, right off the bat, this sends the alarm bells ringing in my head, because whilst Jesse Marcel, that major, would later state that the materials were, quote, not of this world, these early testimonies prove that kind of unreliable. After being found and examined by between five and nine people, including Air Force officers, the debris was taken to Fort Worth, Texas, and a press conference was held to announce the findings of the crash investigation. Now, the military was engaging in a cover-up at the time. Just not about aliens. Project Mogul was, you see, all part of the US's nuclear testing program, which at the time was riddled with spies and had a real big espionage problem. Specifically, it was used to see whether the American air forces could use weather balloons, seemingly innocuous but fitted with high-altitude microphones, to detect Soviet nuclear blasts from the United States. This was long before things like the U-2 spy plane, so Americans needed a different way of attempting to spy on people, but, you know, having things that crash, which is the way that they tend to go. They couldn't go telling every Joe Bloggs that their nuclear testing project was situated in New Mexico, though, so they lied. The object was just an ordinary weather balloon. They compared the debris fed to be from the crash with another weather balloon, and those present at the press conference were satisfied with the comparison. Then the story dies down for the better part of 30 years. Enter Stanton Friedman, 
He's kind of the key to this whole thing. Without him, this would doubtless still be a conspiracy linchpin, but he's the catalyst for this happening when it did. Let's consider the mood of 1978. Vietnam was over, and the South had lost. The Communists had won. Watergate had shattered public trust in the government. They lied about the war in Indochina. They lied about the president's involvement in Watergate. What else was the government lying about? Now, the US government was, to be fair, to the public perception involved in some very shady stuff at the time. Hell, arguably the most blatant instance of treason in the US government, the Iran-Contra affair, was just around the corner. For now, though, there was kind of a zeitgeist for conspiracy and the unveiling of cover-ups. All of this mistrust was brewing, and this was kind of sort of where a lot of it came to a head. After working as a nuclear physicist with a specialty in research and development for companies such as Ford and General Electric, Friedman left his career in 1970 to become a full-time ufologist, as they're referred to. For his part, Friedman was specifically interested in what he called flying saucers, and not other kinds of UFOs, and he wasn't lazy in his career. Until he died in 2019, he was working on the study of flying saucers, having even testified in Congress twice and spoken at the UN on the subject of alien life. So, in his field, I suppose you could consider him something of an expert. Back in 1968, Friedman had told the Committee of the House of Representatives that he believed aliens were trying to contact human civilization, and he became the first civilian outside of the initial group to document the site of the Roswell crash. But this glittering reputation doesn't necessarily make the evidence convincing. For example, he referred to some memos and papers referred to as the Majestic 12 documents, but he later himself proved that some of those papers were in fact hoaxes, and thus, despite their featuring in the book American Magic, they proved very little. Furthermore, his interviewing of Marcel isn't much to go off either. At the time of the crash, Marcel said basically nothing, and only really chose to offer up those juicy tidbits on Roswell much, much later in life, when the interest had already sparked up again. Now, this isn't to say people can't change their positions on things, but given that he is the only real testimony from one of the actual military guys that handled Roswell, it's not much in the way of concrete evidence, especially as Marcel changed his story several times. As for all the other accounts, I can combat them all in one fell swoop, and I'll tell you why. They rely all, partly or entirely, on interviews and testimonies given by a number of people that supposedly rests in the hundreds. But of all the people supposedly interviewed, fewer than ten were verifiably involved with the crash investigation, and of those, only a handful said anything. Relatives of William Brazel and Marcel, and their stories are inconsistent at best. So what we have is a large number of eyewitness testimonies, already a notoriously unreliable source of evidence, and a few of the testimonies from some people who were actually involved that don't seem to line up with each other. Were there aliens there? No aliens, you say? Did some of them come from a different crash? Were there two? Were there eight? Were there twenty? What was the craft made of? Was it made of elements not of this earth? Or was it made of tinfoil, paper and sticks? Those early reports, especially from Brazel himself and the local reporting, seem to indicate the latter, that it was made of metal, rubber, tinfoil, paper and sticks. It's only afterwards, quite long after in fact, that a few of the people involved start talking about aliens, even then in a manner inconsistent with each other. If they had all said, oh yeah, five small grey aliens, five foot tall, wearing green overalls, and it was definitely alien spaceship material, that might be something, maybe. But nothing that reliable or consistent can be found, and thus I resign the interviews to the bin of implausible evidence. Think about it. A man who is somewhat famous as a conspiracy author, in the case of Burlitz and Moore, comes up to you and asks you about this weird event that you don't remember super well, but they tell you if you cooperate you'll be famous and you'll be in their book. How many people do you know in your life, at least, that would just say what they wanted to hear for the sake of being in the book? 
Roswell is, to put it bluntly, one of the most thoroughly debunked conspiracies there is. It's the Bermuda Triangle all over again for me. Skeptic B.D. Gildenberg said that no fewer than 11 supposed crash sites were identified by supposed researchers, and that many of those crash sites were from unrelated military crashes in the 40s and 50s. There was an airbase nearby. Planes crash all the time, especially when they're testing new ones. Charles Ziegler, an anthropologist, argued that the Roswell story was actually a good example of how narratives form and transform. Supposed witnesses are sought to verify your own account. Those who comply get listed as genuine witnesses. Those who don't or who contradict them are either misremembering or they're lying or they're part of the cover-up or they don't count. Thus, the myth is self-reinforcing. There is a story that admittedly seemed a little apocryphal, so maybe take it with a grain of salt, about a US military scientist called Walter Singlevich, who, along with another pilot, donned radioactive suits and oxygen masks to retrieve a downed weather balloon in either 1951 or 52, as parts of Operation Buster Jangle and Operation Tumblesnapper, respectively. Real names. They then encountered a local woman who fainted upon seeing them as spacemen with their downed spacecraft, so it is possible that some of these sightings of aliens and spacemen were just people in costumes or test dummies. And one of the main testimonies from a man called Glenn Davis, who nearly 40 years after the fact came out and said that there were alien autopsies at the Roswell Air Base, was thoroughly debunked. Dennis changed the name of a nurse in later tellings of his story after it was revealed that she was actually a made-up character. So there you have it. A whole lot of nothing, no evidence, and no aliens. So why does Roswell linger so much in our popular consciousness? Well, probably because there really was, and really is, a conspiracy surrounding it. There was a shady nuclear science test going down in the deserts of New Mexico, and the military did cover it up with a, well, partially fake story about a weather balloon. So because of this, conspiracy theories and those who are simply curious or interested will always flock to Roswell as the cornerstone of ufology. Furthermore, it made a hell of a lot of money. Between back and forths between competing ufologists and books, Hollywood movies, movie rights, TV shows, you name it, Roswell has been very good to the pop culture industry involved with it. This means that they'll do whatever they can to keep it in the loop, long after it's been debunked basically as just a test balloon crash. Doesn't this all sound familiar to those of you who recall the Bermuda Triangle episode? It's a myth because pop culture creators wanted it to be a myth. Roswell sells, Bermuda Triangle sells, so both get bigged up into these classic mysteries never to be solved. This is because you can make endless money selling the true tell-all tale of the secrets behind the conspiracy over and over again. Everything, though the truth is relatively obvious to anybody who would spend five minutes reading about it, or maybe 20 to 30 minutes listening to a podcast about it. Remember I mentioned before the author's competing accounts going back and forth and back and forth? That's just the case. When that skeptic said he'd found that there were no less than 11 different official crash sites identified for the Roswell crash, that was because there were all those competing accounts, all of different people saying, oh, no, no, this is the truth, and there were two aliens, and this is the footage. Okay, well, that footage gets disproven. No, no, there were four aliens, and they were taken to this base. Oh, no, it was this base. There's all sorts of back and forth and back and forth. And that's great for the myth, because it means that as soon as one story gets debunked, you can come out with, oh no, this was the real truth, and then you're back in it again. 
It all ties back to modern mythology, and in a way I suppose it mirrors classical mythology. People seek explanations for that which they can't explain, so they turn to the supernatural. But simply because such things are disproven, that doesn't mean people won't believe in them. I'm getting dangerously close to what I guess you could call edgy atheist territory, but it's the same thing for a lot of religious issues. Weeping statues, for example. They're all hoaxes, hoaxes to a one. But with an unshakable faith, you might not see that it's a hoax, you might believe it just based on that faith. Plus, let's not forget that all-important mistrust culture that spawned the UFO renaissance. Basically, the timing of the rise of interest in conspiracy theories coincides pretty well with the end of about two decades of barefaced lying by the American government to its citizens. Now, you can of course argue that all governments lie all the time, it's a feature of government, but between the dissatisfying conclusion of the Warren Commission for the JFK assassination, the disastrous war in Vietnam with the overinflated success stories juxtaposed with the newsreels, Watergate scandal and the legacy of old tricky Dick Nixon, and general Cold War drama and tension, it's safe to say that a lot of people at that time in the US were looking for reasons to distrust the government and were finding them. So when a fairly well-respected, at least at the time, nuclear physicist writes a book that says there was an alien cover-up in New Mexico, that's just one more thing to the pile. It's par for the course. You would be, well, I'm not surprised that they're lying about aliens. They lied about everything else, so it's believed. Oh, and here's another book, and this one has an interview with people who were there, and he says there were aliens at the crash site. Never mind that this book stipulates a different crash site to the last book. Oh, and this book says there was a different aliens at another site, and so on and so on. But again, it's just more evidence for the pile. And it continues to the modern day. Just think about the reaction to things like the Panama Papers, where it was revealed that the super-rich were hoarding wealth in a massive tax evasion scheme. Things that people believe that they already sort of knew, but that there was a secret scheme where the super-rich were massively evading tax. And, you know, it gets blown out and it's revealed, and then it's just more mistrust. For my part, I believe it goes back to the central thinking that all humans love a narrative. Human brains are trained to detect patterns, it's an evolutionary thing. It helps us see the tiger in the long grass. But this extends beyond just our sight and it goes into our thinking patterns. We see what we think is a link and we follow it. Our brains make leaps of logic to connect the dots and voila, conspiracy theory. It also helps people feel a bit vindicated in their lives. A great example I like to use is people who think that global warming is a myth. If global warming, which caused the storm that sank your house, is ever so slightly your fault because you are, for example, a coal miner in South Wales, then in a roundabout way, you're part of the problem. But if it's a conspiracy made up by the elites, then that makes you feel better, because they're just out to get you. That storm was a random event. It's not at all related to you and the industry that you're a part of. It also makes you the good guy, because then there's the bad guys who are trying to manipulate you which helps you have a nice clear-cut good and evil divide in a world where things are so often a mix of right and wrong and in shades of grey. So, be they benign or malignant, conspiracy theories will always be around in modern society, as long as people have a funny feeling about something, and I'm sure they will. But that, I guess, is the message of this story, that it's important not to let your gut instinct get the better of you all the time, and to think rationally and critically about things. But be reasonably sceptical going both ways when you do your thinking. It's like looking both ways before crossing the street. Question what that Air Force Major tells you about weather balloons, but also question yourself when you end up bending over backwards to make the facts fit your theory, instead of the other way around. So that, my dear listeners, is my approximation of the story behind Roswell. A genuine conspiracy, just not quite the one you think that it is. This episode of Demystified with Ashley Styles was written, produced, and recorded by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. 
Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.